Good morning. Good morning. There we go. Hey, we are so glad you're here this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt. I have the joy and honor of being the campus pastor here in Halstead. And before we get started today, I just want to give a shout out to those of you who helped make our Open House Sunday go off last weekend. You guys just did a great job. Thank you. Uh, we are in week two of our series, uh, I Can't Believe. If you missed last week, what we're doing really is just tackling some of the, the big objections to faith that maybe you have in your own heart or somebody you know and care about has in their heart as to why they can't believe in Jesus. And so last week, we kicked off by uh, talking about one of the largest groups of people who can't believe, and it's those who actually think they already believe. It's those that we've called the religiously immunized. Those have had enough of the religious experience to think they know God, but according to the word of God, there will be many on that day who he says, I never knew you in the way that you thought. And so we said, really, the, the way out of that religious cycle is to come experience Jesus for yourself, not experience a, a religious cycle, but to come experience Jesus for yourself. And in there, you would find everything your heart has craved where religion has left you disappointed, you would find satisfied in Jesus. And so uh, we ended last week by saying, if you, don't, if you don't believe yet, if you're still skeptical, come on back, because today we're going to talk about the skeptic. Those who have their doubts, and I don't have to know you very well to, to know that you probably have doubts. You have doubts about God, you have doubts about religion, or at least you did at one point. You have doubts about what the Bible has to say, or at least you did at one point. And uh, we're going to look today at a story of an individual who dealt with his doubts and his skepticism. But as I think about this, and I have conversations with people that I know, and I'm sure as you have conversations with people you know and you love, um, you hear objections to faith all the time. You hear things uh, about an intellectual disagreement with the Bible or things in there like, you really mean to believe that you believe in hell? Like a, a loving God would do that and have that as part of his story? You really believe, like honestly and truly, that a guy and his wife and their kids hopped on a boat with a zoo, survived a flood, and that, like, you really believe that's true? Like when you hear some of these stories coming from people, you're going to hear some intellectual objections to Scripture. Maybe there's the question that you saw on the bumper. I've experienced the world and its brokenness, and I've experienced God or some semblance of God or what I believe to be a semblance of God, and they don't seem to measure up in a way that I would want to follow. It, it, I just grow skeptical as I see the whole thing, saying something's not right here. Maybe for you, it's been a personal experience. You've gone through a personal disappointment, a personal heartache. You've had a front row seat to hypocrisy in a way that, that makes you wonder what this is all about. See, many people give doubt uh, for the reason they can't believe. And I know some dear friends of mine who say, I would love to believe, I just don't want to have to turn my mind off to believe because they heard something in a lecture one time that contradicted what they grew up with. So the question really looming for us is, can you have doubts and still believe? Can you come to Jesus with questions and can you find answers for them? We're going to be in the Gospel of John chapter 20. Go ahead and turn there. Um, John chapter 20. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. But I want to set the stage for you because Jesus is going to interact with a man named Thomas who had his doubts, who had his skepticism. And I want you to, as you read through this narrative, find yourself in the story and be honest with the questions and doubts that you have. Whether you are a believer or not, let's be honest about some things that are in there. So John chapter 20, the, the stage is basically this, that Jesus has come. 
He, he came to earth. He lived his three years. He went to the cross as he said he was going to. He died on the cross. He was buried. And now on Easter morning, um, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with oil and fragrance, which was tradition. And when Mary Magdalene gets to the tomb, she finds that Jesus is not in the tomb as she thought he was going to be. Well, Mary freaks out, thinks somebody stole Jesus' body. So she runs back to the disciples who were all hiding and says, hey, Jesus isn't in the tomb. And some of them are like, okay, Mary's crazy. Let's just, all right, it's just, it's just Mary, but let's go look for ourselves. So two of the disciples run, and what they find there is an empty tomb and a neatly folded headscarf, which tells us one thing. It tells us a couple things, but the first thing it tells us um, is that this wasn't a burglary. Because if you're going to steal a body of a social, religious, and political figure like Jesus underneath Roman guard, you don't take the time to fold a piece of cloth. Okay? So this wasn't a burglary. The second thing, it shows that this was a resurrection, that Jesus is not there, and a miracle happened. There's a single guy who remembered to fold his laundry before he left the house in the morning. So it must be God. All right. So uh, the disciples are just, they're freaked out, honestly. And so they go back home to the, the house that they were all staying in, essentially. They lock the door because they're afraid for their lives. They think they're next. So even after seeing the empty tomb, they don't really believe. They're in fear, hiding. Well, Jesus walks through the locked doors, however Jesus does, and he stands there in the midst of them and says, here I am. Come touch my side. Come feel uh, my fingerprints. And they see it, and they're, wow, this is incredible. But for some reason, our friend Thomas wasn't there. I don't know if they sent him to a Starbucks run to grab uh, Grubhub for everybody to bring it back so nobody got caught, right? Like, for some reason, Thomas isn't there. So we're going to pick up the story um, in John chapter 20, verse 24. It says this. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas hears his 10 closest friends tell him, we saw Jesus. We saw the nail scarred hands. We saw his side. Jesus really is back. You know everything he was telling us for the last three years about going to the cross and dying and being resurrected. It's true, Thomas. And Thomas says, no. Nah. Now, if 10 of your closest friends told you something and they all had the same story, do you think at some point there's something in your heart that goes, maybe that's true? Maybe that happened if 10 of the people I know most have said this to be true? See, but what's interesting is at the end of this verse here, you get a window into his heart. He says, I will not believe. See, Thomas right here is making a conscious decision to choose unbelief. I don't care about the facts. I don't care about your testimony. I don't care about the experience. Unless I have the facts in front of me, I am choosing to not believe. This is going to be very important when we come back around to his conversion. See, what I think is most interesting about Thomas, um, and I honestly feel bad for him a little bit, because if you have been around church at all, you know Thomas has a nickname, and it's Doubting Thomas. See, my point is proven. Yeah. See, but Peter ran away from a middle school girl, but nobody calls him Petrified Peter, right? It's not Luke the Lustful or James the Judgmental. He's the only guy who gets a, a negative nickname. And the truth is, lots of people doubted Jesus. 
Lots of people doubted Jesus, including John the Baptist, who was the front runner for Jesus, who came as a, a prophetic voice talking about the Messiah that was coming. At one point, he wasn't living up, or Jesus wasn't living up to the expectations of John the Baptist, and so he sends a messenger and says, are you the real deal, or was I wrong? Doubt from the greatest prophet. Did I pick the wrong savior? Then there's Jesus' brother. How many of you have older brothers? All right. If your older brother came to you later and said, hey, just so we're clear, I'm God and I'm sinless, right? You're going to say, maybe you're the devil incarnate, but you're certainly not God, all right? Let's just be square here, right? So James, the brother of Jesus, hears Jesus make these claims and even publicly, you can read this for yourself in the book of John, says, you're crazy, Jesus. This is all ludicrous. So even James doubted him, who was his brother. Now James would go on to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem, One of my favorites comes out of Matthew 28. Um, What's happening here, we don't have the exact timeline of how this all took place, um, but this is where Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's met the disciples a couple times, and he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, which um, I don't know what that looks like. I'm going to imagine it looks a lot like beam me up, Scotty, and there's just this beam of Jesus going up in the air. Um, but, But here is something so interesting. They've heard, they've seen, they've had dinner with the resurrected Jesus, They're watching him find his way into heaven, and here's what Matthew recounts for us. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Here's a bunch of guys watching a dead man levitate into heaven, going, ah, I just don't know if it's true. I might stay agnostic for a little while. I'll feel it out. And that that should give you and I some comfort, that even those closest to the risen Savior had some doubts they had to work through. They had some questions they wanted answered. See, the story of um, Thomas is placed very interesting in the text of the book of John because it's, it's the last story before John gives the purpose statement of the book. Essentially, what he's saying is this is the ultimate can't-believe story, and it's written for you. I want you to read these verses for me or with me. Verse, jump down to verse 30 there. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Essentially, Jesus did a bunch of other stuff to prove that he was God, more than this book could contain. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The, the story of Thomas is so you and I can come with our doubts, comes with our skepticism, see a man who met Jesus in a way that transformed his entire life, And maybe, just maybe, we too, with verse 31, might believe that Jesus really is who he said he was. And in doing that, we may find the life that we ultimately long for. So I want to examine Thomas' story with you and the rest of our time together and ask, really, how did he get here? How did he go through all of this time with Jesus and still have his doubts? And really, that's the starting point for Thomas because he had been in and around Jesus for three years. He had experienced him. And what became true was this, that Jesus shattered uh, what Thomas expected God to be like. Jesus shattered what Thomas thought God was like because what everybody thought the Messiah was going to do, the, the coming Savior, was he was going to come, squash Rome, put the enemies uh, at bay, build up their power, make them powerful rulers over the area, and instead, Jesus comes and he has dinner with their enemies. He's kind to their enemies. He heals their enemies. He's gracious 
to their enemies. And he ultimately dies a, a shameful death at the hand of their enemies. And so Thomas all of a sudden has his whole expectation of who God is destroyed. Now, you're probably not waiting for God to come uh, establish a new political power and make you a king over um, an area, but I bet some of us had an expectation that God would have destroyed our enemies and our ailments by now, that God would have taken that sickness by now. God would have healed that person right now. There's a, a box we can build around who we expect God to be, and sometimes the Jesus we experience and the Jesus we expect are different. And so it was for Thomas. The second thing, really, is that Jesus personally disappointed Thomas. Because in Thomas's journey, he left his livelihood, he left his family, he endured, I'm sure, ridicule from his friends, saying, seriously, you're going to follow the Jesus guy? You're one of those weirdos? I said, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. And then all of a sudden, Jesus dies and disappears? I'm going to go back to your friends and say, you know what? That guy that I spent my whole life following turned out to be a phony. Maybe for you, maybe for some of your friends, that's the wrestle. Because you're afraid of the potential scrutiny that may come with following Jesus. I'm just going to call it doubt, but really I'm just not confident enough to bank my life on that actually being true. See, what was true for him is true for many people that you encounter, and perhaps you as well, that his shattered heart clouded his ability to believe. He was seeing Jesus through his broken heart. He was seeing Jesus through his disappointment. And I resonate deeply with the story of Thomas. I have a lot of sympathy. I can feel his questions and his angst because I grew up in a world that didn't measure up. I grew up in a home that claimed Christianity but was full of abuse and neglect and abandonment and anger. And so I, on one hand, knew all the Christian things to say because we went to church and it was wrapped in church attendance and I went to a Christian school, but then my experience of godliness was far from what I was told it should be. And so I grew up in this paradigm of saying, well, if that's who God is, I want nothing to do with it. I understand your platitudes about him, but my experience have been very, very different. And if there is a God, he certainly can't be good if this has been my life. And so I resonate deeply with that, my broken heart caused me to look at God and say, I think I'm better off without you. I think I can choose a way that is safer, that's more secure, that's more in my control than trusting you. Now, what was that? That wasn't my doubt speaking. That was my broken heart clouding my ability to see who God really was. See, his shattered heart doubted, clouded his ability to believe. And maybe for you, that's true as well. What is really getting in the way? I want you to see with me how Jesus responds to Thomas because I think it is true of how he responds to each one of us. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. I want you to notice this. Jesus let Thomas sit in his doubts for a week. He didn't run to him that night. He didn't run to him the next day. I just want to clear this up for you. He let Thomas sit there in his doubts for a whole nother week. Though the doors were locked, so clearly they still don't get it. They're still afraid. They're still hiding. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, a guy who just walks through a closed door says, peace be with you. Frankly, they're startled. Again, there's Jesus. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. He walks in the room and he goes right for Thomas. He says, here I am, Thomas. 
I'm not trying to hide anything. Come, look for yourself. Put your hand in here. Put your finger through the hole in my hand. Come see, Thomas. I am here. Do you notice how he walks right in the room and singles him out? He doesn't run from his doubts. He moves towards him in his doubts. But what I find so interesting is how Jesus finishes his statement to him. He says, stop doubting and believe. He says, you're making a choice not to believe Knock it off, essentially, is what Jesus says. Just stop. You're choosing to not believe. Would you stop and simply believe? All the revelation you need is standing in front of you. See, what's interesting and what became true for him may have to be true for some of us is that he quit demanding explanation and submitted to revelation. He quit demanding answers and submitted to the revelation of Jesus in front of him. Did Jesus answer any of his questions about the resurrection? No. Did Jesus answer any of his questions about why he died at the hands of Rome? No. Did Jesus answer why he didn't set up a political power? No. He just revealed himself to Thomas in a way that said, here I am. And again, I want you to see this again. Simply said, next verse, stop doubting and believe. And you know what? It was enough for Thomas. Look at how he replies verse 28. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. Thomas says, all right, my Lord, my God. But what's interesting is how did Jesus know what Thomas's doubts were? How did he know that he wanted to see the nail-scarred hands? Well, because Jesus is omniscient and omnipresent, which means he's all-knowing and he's all places. And in that moment, Thomas realized he wasn't looking at Jesus, his friend he got fish with. He was looking at Jesus, this risen Savior of the world. In that moment, he realized the person in front of him wasn't somebody he would ever have to doubt because he really, truly was God. And when he says, my Lord, my God, essentially his statement is, I don't have to call the shots anymore. I don't have to have the answers. You're the king I'm not. See, what's interesting is you maybe wrestle with your own heart or have conversations with people that you love and care about. They're going to give a lot of reasons for why they doubt. And if you want to find evidence for the resurrection, it's there. If you want to find evidence for the canon of Scripture, it's there. If you want to find evidence for God's creation, it's there. So really and truly, the question often isn't intellectual disagreements. There's something else in there. I want to read you this quote from Aldous Huxley. He coined the term agnosticism, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with. He wrote the book Brave New World. And in one of his other writings, um, this is what he says about really the meaning and existence of God. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find a satisfying reason for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt, for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. Here's the essence of what he says. I didn't want a God to exist. I didn't want his morality to be true. So I found a worldview in which he didn't exist, in which it wasn't true, because then I was free to live however I wanted without constraint. 
I didn't have to listen to a moral code. I didn't have to feel guilty. I could do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, and if it felt good, I was going to do it guilt-free. See, the real reason he chose not to believe wasn't because there wasn't valid evidence for it, but he wanted to ignore that evidence to live the life he wanted to live. So my question for us this morning and for you to think through and perhaps ask somebody you know and love and care about is, if you don't believe, what's the real reason? If you don't believe in God, what is the real reason? After service, I was standing out there on the sidewalk, and Joel Ledon, one of our deacons, came up to me and said, hey, I just got this text from my friend. Um, can you help me answer it? And I was reading through it, and it literally was somebody talking about why God can't exist because you can't tell me 2 plus 2 equals 5. And I said, okay, that doesn't mean anything about Christianity. What's the real reason why he doesn't believe? And he said, okay, how do we answer this? I said, okay, ask him these questions. What's your real doubts? What's the real reasons? And then say, if you got all of those questions answered, would you then believe in God? You know what the answer often is? No. Why? Because there's other reasons, there's other motivations. Because perhaps there's a sin you really, really like. It's really fun. And you know coming to Jesus would mean you're held accountable for that sin. Maybe there's a pattern of life or maybe there's a belief that you just don't want to give up. Maybe there's a worldview that you've come to agree with because you've heard it forever and then the word of God contradicts that lifestyle or contradicts um, the way that you would choose to live and you just don't want to come to terms with that because we like what we like. See, the question for Thomas is the question for us. What's really getting in the way? Jesus says this about belief in John chapter 7. Anyone who chooses, notice this word again, chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Here's what Jesus is saying here. If you choose to follow God, it will become self-evident if he is real or not. It will become self-evident. And what I find interesting in here is that the willingness for it to be true comes before belief. I'll say it this way. A willingness to believe comes before belief. Maybe the reason you say you can't believe or the person you know says they can't believe is because they don't want it to be true. And so, um, of course, we're going to find reasons for it not to be true. But if we are willing to believe that he is God, that he is the risen Savior, that he is who he says he is, what you will find is that your unbelief begins to fade away. It starts first with a heart posture, not with the facts, which is what was true of Thomas' story here. See, it wasn't the facts of Jesus' resurrection that changed Thomas, but it was the wounds of Jesus that did. It wasn't that he got all of his questions answered. It was because he looked at the scars of Jesus and realized those were put there by me, for me, for my salvation. So say what you want about the Old Testament character of God and all of your questions. The character of God is revealed most plainly in the cross. So say what you want about the worldview. At the end of the day, he's the only God I know that went to the cross to die for your sin. And that's the revelation Thomas gets in that moment. Those wounds are there for me. What's interesting is this moment it entirely transformed Thomas. He went from being doubting Thomas to church tradition tells us he went and followed the great commission of Jesus to be a missionary and he went to India and he passionately preached about the guy he once doubted so much so that he ended up getting stabbed by a pagan priest with a spear because he would not stop talking about this guy Jesus who changed everything for him. You see, doubting Thomas became martyr Thomas. Why? 
because he saw the wounds of Jesus that were there on his behalf. When you consider and examine a Savior who knows everything about you, knows all of your doubts, and then moved towards you so far to the cross to pay for your sin that you might be near him, what you find in there is an incredibly compassionate, kind, loving, and capable Savior. He says, come, bring your doubts, bring your fears. I'm here. I have nothing to hide. This was my experience. I came to God in a a moment of crisis where the weight of my sin became too much for me. So all of my bold statements of I don't need you, I don't trust you, you're not safe, kind of came to a a culmination where I felt the weight of my sin and, and the inability to do anything about it. And I cried out to God and I said, all right, If you're really who you say you are, if you really went to the cross for me, then prove it to me. Show me in my life that you're good. I surrender. My Lord, my God, I quit (laughs) trying to be the God of my own life. Here I am, Jesus. And in that moment, the weight just lifted from my shoulders. Years later, you know what? I I don't have doubts. I have questions. There's a lot of questions that I want to get to heaven that I want to ask God, and I'm sure I'm going to get there, and none of them are going to be important when I see his glory and his goodness. But I got questions. But what I don't have is doubts about his character. What I don't have to have in those moments of crisis is wondering if he's good. I know he's good. The cross is undeniable that he's good. The question is, will I allow my heart, will I choose to let my heart believe that in the hardest of moments, that he is who he says he is. So ask your questions. Give your doubts to the Lord. Here's what he's not doing in heaven. He's not up there going, do I exist? Did I really send Jesus to the cross? Did I really inspire that word? He's not doubting himself. He's not concerned that you would find a hole in his plan because there is none. So ask your questions, but be prepared for his answer in reply, which may be something like this. Do you have the humility to believe and surrender to the revelation that he is who he says he is? Now, this is for the believer and the non-believer alike. Because just like the non-believer may be tempted to, to close off God and say, I don't want that kind of God, we as believers can be tempted to come to him like a buffet in which we pick the things we like. See, we don't often want a God that's different than us. Often we want a God who's a divine reflection of us. We create a God that looks a lot like our ideas and our values and our opinions, and we call him Jesus. What the story of Thomas says is he is who he says he is. I don't get to create a preconceived idea of God. I surrender to the revelation of who he is. And so we can't compartmentalize and pick and choose and cut parts out of the Bible that we don't like. It's his word. The question is, are we going to be humble enough to say, You are who you say you are, and I am who you say I am, which is loved, adopted, and in need of salvation. And you offer that? Amen. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, we love you. I thank you personally for finding me in my doubts and finding me in my questions and finding me in my anger. And God, you knew the whole reason all along why I couldn't believe. And you met me there. Lord, I pray that would be true of every heart in this room here today. 
that if someone's here and has reasons for why they can't believe God, that you would meet them in a way that, that absolves all of those, all those fears, all those anxieties, all the anger. They would find you. They would find your kindness and they would find the cross and they would find the free gift of salvation. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you, like Thomas, would like to move from doubt into faith and, and to put your, your life in the hands of the good and righteous king, we'd love to have a conversation with you. Come find me, somebody wearing a blue name tag. We would love to tell you more about that. Lord, we love you. Help us be humble people who submit to who you say you are and in that find freedom from fears, freedom from doubts, and find a life and life abundant in you. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.